Hey, and welcome to The Living Stone, a digital ministry from Greystone Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Here's this week's scripture reading and sermon. I'll be reading today from Judges, chapter 6, verses 11 through 22. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. Gideon answered him, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. He responded, But sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites, every one of them. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor with you, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a kid and unleavened cakes from an ephah um, flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And a fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Help me, Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The word of God for the people of God. We never hear any memory verses that come from the book of Judges. I don't remember any of it being part of the Bible drill curriculum. Strange because we don't find material from Judges often printed on sentimental greeting cards meant to provide hope during seasons of great distress. We rarely even read from the book of Judges, if we are honest. And I would dare to say that in 15 years of ordained ministry, I've never had a church member ask me for a Bible study on the book of Judges. I bet if we were to rank the whole book uh, like, like a top 10 list of our favorite books of the Bible, Judges might be, I don't know, somewhere around like 64th, 65th, you know, right there with Leviticus and Numbers, our other favorite books. The truth is, we don't really know what to do with this book. It's difficult. We don't know how to make sense of it for our lives, and I suspect that that might be the case because the picture that it paints for us is not a feel-good, anecdotal, story kind of book. Rather, the book of Judges draws us down into some of Israel's most difficult and dark days as a people. And to be honest, I sort of feel like we don't need any more of that in our lives these days. 
We don't need to compile any additional resources on despair and disappointment. We don't need any more bad news or sad news. No, it's no wonder that we are not turning to the pages of this ancient book in our search for a little good news. You know, the book of Judges itself is part of a much bigger collection of history. History that is woven together with story, as is often the case in the books of our Bibles. This one recalls the period of time between the death of Joshua, do you remember him, leading the people through exile? So it it chronicles that time between the death of Joshua and the emergence of the first king of Israel. It describes an in-between season for the people, a liminal space, so to speak, a time of challenge and a time of change, a time during which different kinds of leaders were raised up to navigate Israel's ever-evolving story. You know, that famous quote from the book of Esther seems to fit here. As the heroes of this part of Israel's story were not kind of timelessly qualified or unilaterally spectacular. No, they were a lot more ordinary, if not even peculiar. But as the stories unfold, we learn that their peculiarities uniquely qualify them for leadership in, as they say, a time such as this. For a time such as this, this time for which these strange leaders were called into action is characterized by a rollercoastery relationship between God's people and God's own self. And it seems to follow a certain pattern. The people forsake their God, right? They sin. God allows enemies to attack. The people cry out to God for help, and then God does what? God raises up a leader to help them, to deliver them, to save them, to get them on the right track. Think about the stories of the people. Does it not follow that roller coaster? And though this predictable pattern, or through this predictable pattern, there is an important theological question that is looming in the background for both the people and the readers like us as we seek hope in the book of Judges. So the question that looms as the people are on this ride with God is this. Is God with us at all? Or has God forgotten us? Is God with us or has God forgotten us? So Gideon. Gideon is one of those peculiar heroes that emerges in this book, and though his role in the longer story of the people is rather short, Gideon's willingness to accept the call to leadership in this particular time earns him a spot in that famous list of faith heroes that we find in Hebrews chapter 11. That was a Bible drill verse we had, or chapter, that we had to remember. So if you turn to Hebrews 11 today, you would find Gideon right there among the ranks of Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and Jacob and Moses and even Rahab. But long before he appeared on anyone's list of great heroes, Gideon is just a boy working on his dad's farm. We meet him there beating out wheat in a wine press in order to hide it from his Midianite oppressors. 
And at this point in the story, the Israelites have been reduced to utter misery, as one translation puts it in verse 6, reduced to utter misery. And it is from their misery that they cry out to God for help, right? Step one, forsake God. Step two, utter misery. Step three, cry out for help. Step four, enter Gideon. Son of Joash, the Abyssalite, youngest in the family, which is the lowest clan in all of Manasseh. Y'all, it's not looking too good. Based on his genetic makeup and his family lineage, Gideon is not going to have what it takes to lead the people. We are wasting our time. But the story persists. At first, Gideon himself seems a bit skeptical. He doesn't see himself as a warrior. He is quite familiar with the power of the Midianites. Why do you think he was trying to hide the work that he was doing on his dad's farm, beating out the wheat in the wine press? That's not a normal way to do it. But after a brief conversation with the angelic messenger that God sent, and after a fiery sign on the altar that Gideon himself built, he eventually comes to believe and accept that he is the one called to lead the people for a time such as this. Now, the whole episode reminds us of the ways that God has been with the people from the very beginning. If you listen to it, it has echoes of the exodus from Egypt as God begins to raise up yet another leader to liberate the people from a new oppressor. It has echoes from the Elijah narratives as fire consumes the makeshift altar, a sign of God's presence and God's blessing. And it has echoes of the time of Jacob, the time when Jacob wrestled with the angel and then emerged the next day to name the place Penuel, which means I have seen the face of God, words that Gideon repeats as he gazes upon his own incinerated altar. Gideon's faithful proclamation provides an answer to that looming theological question. Do you remember it? Is God with us or has God forgotten us? At least Gideon knows the answer for now. And satisfied with that answer, he begins to assemble his army and through some rather unconventional means and to really explore that. You should go home and read chapters 7 and 8. Eventually, he led the Israelite people to victory. Even still, Gideon's success was not welcomed or affirmed by the whole nation. The people criticized him for the way that he built his altar back when he was discerning God's call upon his life. People criticized the way that he tore down the altars to Baal. People doubted that any serious leader could ever come from his tribe, which, you know, sounds a lot like what would be said about Jesus later on. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, they said. But despite all the doubt, the story of God's liberating presence persists. You know, sometimes when we approach our texts, when we read these ancient stories, it is hard to see ourselves and the characters. I don't know about you, but I have never had to beat out wheat in a wine press to hide from my oppressor. 
I don't know about you, but I've never torn down an altar of Baal, and I have never built an altar and prayed for God to light it on fire. It is hard to put ourselves in these ancient and peculiar stories. But this time, if we can get past all of that surface-level stuff and pay attention to what's happening in the actual story, it's hard not to see ourselves in the story of Gideon. In fact, we are all over it. It makes me wonder if that ancient roller coaster relationship with God isn't only descriptive of the Israelite journey, but if it isn't also a little predictive of how our relationship with God would always be. It sure reminds me of some times in my own life, or perhaps in our lives, when we have all felt like we'd been reduced to utter misery. Surely we can remember the times when we have grown distant from God, either by circumstance or by events of our own making. But no matter how we got to that point, we do know a little something about being at our absolute lowest, don't we? And since we're familiar with how that feels, remember that's step one on this cycle then maybe we also know a little bit about step two, crying out for God's help. Not quite sure if God's even listening anymore. And maybe if we can understand that, we can also recognize what it's like to live in the theological question, is God with us or has God forgotten us? If there is any hope to be found in Judges, If there is any hope to be found in Gideon, I wonder if it is simply this. God remembers. God remembers us. And God is with us. God did not forget us. We just forgot to look where God likes to work. In Manasseh. In Nazareth in the most marginal, far-off places, and through the most marginal and peculiar people, with Gideon of all people, youngest son, lowest tribe, weakest clan, isn't it just like God to weave a story of hope that starts in a person like that? You know, this whole ordeal reminds me of the story of three black women. Catherine Goble Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson. Do you know their names? Their stories, most of us never know, or most of us would never know, if not for the 2016 film appropriately titled Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures. In the film, we see each of these women struggling with the systemic racism that worked behind the scenes to prevent them from receiving adequate education and transportation and opportunity to succeed. But even still, these women earned their way onto NASA's payroll during the height of the space race in the 1960s. 
armed with their brilliant minds, a persistent sense of self-worth, and an absolute conviction that they were going to make a way for themselves and for other people of color suffering under the yoke of racial discrimination. God was at work. God had not forgotten them. God was with them, liberating God's own people from the racism that was keeping them low. And remember, remember where God's liberation often begins, on the margin. The whole movie is well worth the 127 minutes it would take you to watch it. But there's one scene in particular that I think might help us today as we continue our quest for hope and consider the stories of judges. Catherine, one of the three women, has recently been assigned to a special task group that is trying to get the first astronaut into orbit. She is the computer, which means she is the math person. She's the first person of color to ever be assigned this task group, much less the first female person of color assigned such an important task. And this is a notoriously transitory position because she's going to be working for a very grumpy director. As the scene plays out, we quickly learn, though, that that director that everybody's warned her about isn't going to be her biggest problem. No, her biggest problem is her colleagues, and most specifically, her direct supervisor, the lead engineer on the job, who refuses to help Catherine, refuses to see her as part of the team at all. Until one night, in a late-night conversation between the program director, the one who was supposed to be so grumpy, and Catherine's direct supervisor, the director tells the supervisor, you know, you have one job to do. Your job is to take all these geniuses in the room and figure out which one is the most genius of all. Well... It's pretty obvious to all of the viewers who the most genius person in the room of geniuses is. It's Catherine. But it takes the supervisor a minute to figure out what is going on. But soon enough, he sees Catherine was the most genius of all the geniuses. And he couldn't see it, though it was right before his eyes. She was the one who learned to see beyond the numbers, which was the challenge for the group. She was the one who could see the mathematical equations that hadn't even been invented yet, but that would be required to map that astronaut not re-entry after he had entered orbit. That had been the stumbling block for this special task force. It was Catherine's beautiful mind that was the way to the program's success, the way to the first American in orbit, the way to liberation in so many more ways. And NASA almost missed it because they, and we too, we're not interested in anything or anyone that came from the margin. They almost missed it. And so do we because of our own egos, our, our own pride, our own desire to control the places from which hope might be trying to spring forth. But friends, I hope that sooner or later we might learn that hope is always trying to spring up.
Hope is always trying to arrive because hope is persistent and hope is stubborn. And yet hope so often requires us to get low, to get low enough, to get humble enough, broken enough to see it and to accept it. Catherine's story is just one in a collection of innumerable stories from our past that remind us of the ways that God works through marginal people and marginal places to bring about God's kingdom and God's liberation from all of the things that oppress and hold us captive to despair. We almost missed orbit. We might have even missed the moon, if not for these three remarkable women and so many people like them, whose names are forgotten, but whose brilliance and hard work propelled NASA to its place in our American story. We almost missed it. We almost missed it because we failed to remember where God likes to plant little seeds of hope. Gideon was just the same, a youngest son, from the lowest family, in the humblest clan of the nation, and yet Gideon was the only one who could deliver the people from the Midianites. Gideon. So what do you think? We've had a few minutes to consider it now. Is there any hope to be found in the book of Judges? Or should we leave it down there with Leviticus and Numbers? Maybe 63, 64. Is there any liberation from despair taking root on the margins of our own lives? I don't know. If we may not see it, we may not see it now from where we are. But I bet if we're willing to get a little lower, we might be able to lower ourselves enough to see it breaking through on the horizon just over there. In fact, I think we can be sure that if we get low enough, humble enough, we'll see it. Because while we may not always remember God's way of hope, we can rest assured that God does remember us. God has not forgotten us. And God is springing up hope just ahead, just on the horizon. Behold, The prophet Isaiah says, I'm about to do a new thing. Behold, Isaiah says, I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Amen.